Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast in which I take fascinating people out for a slap-up lunch. And all they have to do is be witty and sparkling and tell me all their secrets. My guest today is a record producer, but not just any record producer. No, this man produced most of the records in my record collection. Yes, he's a genius of the highest order. He more or less single-handedly invented the sound of glam rock, but that's just too small an achievement. He went on to work in many other genres. He was always a true experimenter. He was the producer of most of Mark Boland's work and most of David Bowie's work. But he also produced literally hundreds of other acts. There should be a genre named after him. It is Tony Visconti. We're eating in Cavita, a Mexican restaurant on Wigmore Street in London, where they source their corn. It's a very special strain of corn, and they can only get it from small farms in rural Mexico. But they take all that trouble just to get the tortillas spot on. Can't wait to try it out. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. This is Shirley, who's going to be serving us today. Hello. Hi. Would you like to order a drink? Uh, I know I, you don't drink, do you? Yeah, I just have water. Which is, which is where why you look as fabulous as you do. <laughs> but I do, and that's why I look like a potato. Well, I've got two reasons. One is I don't drink. Yeah. The second one is I'm a diabetic, so oh. that's just empty calories, you know, yeah. carbohydrates. You know. Yeah. What, do you, do you want some fizzy water? Uh, no, just uh, plain water. So some, yeah. So water, and I'll have, a, I'll have a margarita. Uh, I have a uh, classic, spicy. Yeah, I'd like the classic one, classic please. Margarita. Yeah, thank you very much. How did you survive 60 plus years in the music biz without becoming an alcoholic? Or <laughs> <laughs> I was. <laughs> Were you? Oh, I was a bad alcoholic. Yeah. I did, uh, you know, like in the eight, 70s and 80s, Coke and alcohol. Yeah. And I'm not talking about Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, you know. yeah. That was, the, the, that was our diet, you yeah. know. And... Uh, I just, I didn't go to rehab or anything. I just, I went to AA for a little bit. Yeah. But one day I just woke up and I said, this is, this is not working anymore. Yeah. I woke up with the, the ultimate hangover, the ultimate feeling like shit. Yeah. Know? And I said, forget about it. You know, and it wasn't really that hard once I made up my mind. How long ago was that? Uh, 23 years now. Was it? Yeah. Now, I have to tell everyone who's listening that I made the biggest mistake of my life and it, it concerned you. Mm. Because I came to see you in the mid-80s to talk about producing an album for Bad News, my kind of spoof, right. spoof rock band. And I remember we met in somewhere in Dean Street and we got on very well. And you had sort of agreed that you would produce it. Yeah. The, there was another plan going on with Brian May because he was going to produce Bohemian Rhapsody, but you were going to produce the rest of the album. Okay. And I don't know where it went awry, but it went awry, and huh. Brian ended up doing the whole album. And I think it's one of the great missed opportunities in comedy music because I know you, I know you're a comedy fan. Sure, a fan of you, yeah. of yours, yeah. But I heard that, that you were at all your. Um, do you say Bowie or Bowie? This Bowie. Is a, do you? The way he says it. Well, no. You see, I saw him interviewed once yeah. on Breakfast Telly, and they said, "Is it Bowie or Bowie?" And he said, "Yes." <laughs> well, I'm going to have a hard time because I always say Bowie and everyone always corrects oh, me. I oh, never correct anyone is, on is, that. Is what we say. But I heard that you and he would often break off recordings to watch 
things like Faulty Towers and Harry and Paul. Yes, <laughs> we did. Which, yeah. is a, which is a great image. Yeah. You know. We had Especially to. when you're in your kind of, well, you've always been an experimental kind of age because you're a very experimental person. Yeah. But the idea that you would break off and watch something as prosaic as, yeah. as those kind of comedies is uh, it's we, very heartening. We had to get them sent. For, someone sent us DVDs from yeah. from London. We had to get a, a, a British DVD player, you yeah. know, the PAL DVD player to yeah. see it. So, sure, it, it broke up the day. We, we we watched one episode per lunchtime. Yeah, of both. And, uh, uh, oh, this is Ernesto. This is Ernesto, Hello. Ernesto, our chef. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, Tony. I'm Aid. Nice to meet you. Ernesto Puga. Welcome to Camita. Thank you. I've really been looking forward to coming here because it's a Mexican restaurant, but it, but it looks like an authentic Mexican restaurant. These dishes you have here, including two kinds. This is the blue chalqueño corn that comes from Estado de Mexico. Ceviche tostada, which is a seafaring. It's been marinated in uh, onions with char grill, that's hence the color. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is the yellow bolita corn from Oaxaca. Yeah, it looks and this very one is our aguachile verde, which is uh, laminated like sashimi style hamachi yeah. that comes from Japan with tomatillo. And this is the tostada you have. Yeah. To sip. Delicious. I find the menu quite confusing because I'm, you know, I don't know a lot of Mexican. I'd like you to present us with what you think is the best on here. Okay, well. Is that, is that okay with you, Tony? Sure. So you're going to bring us a, a range of yes. delicious things. I think eat. I would like to surprise you with. Yeah, surprise me. Yes. <laughs> okay. And Creep up from behind. And I will. Yeah. All right, See brilliant. You Thank you very Extra much. Gracias. De nada. Yeah. Now, the trouble with you, Tony, is that <laughs> whenever you want to talk about you, you have to talk about other people. Sure. Because you're a record producer. Yeah, I'm nothing without them. Yeah. <laughs> what does a record, Don't agree with that. What does a record producer do? <laughs> record producer is in charge of the whole business. Yeah. So an artist comes in with an idea, a bunch of songs, more or less knows how to do it, but does not want to be responsible for it. Yeah. That's where I come in. Yeah. And uh, I have to make sure it all sounds great. It has to please the artist mainly. I, I work, uh, you know, directly with the artist. It's a very creative role, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm hands-on because I'm an, a musical arranger. I read and write music. I've, been in, I've done everything conceivable from being in choirs to uh, uh, I was in a jazz bands when I was a kid, you know, yeah. playing the upright bass. You know, yeah. I grew up playing in rock and roll bands. What was uh, the first time you realized that you were going to be a record producer? Because you must have wanted to be a pop star. To be of course, I wanted to be a pop star first. Yeah. I got a, a little deal with RCA Records to make a few singles to see how it would, would turn out. Hmm. And one day my uh, publisher called me into the, his office and he said, Tony, I got to tell you, I, I don't like your songs. I don't think you're a good writer. <laughs> and I went, you know, yeah. the shades came down. Yeah. And, I, and I said, well, so that, I hate you. that's it, I'm sacked, you know. Yeah. So I was getting ready to leave, you know. And he says, but I love your productions because I was making demos for his other writers and I had a, just a little tiny room and yeah. I had I brought my own equipment in my own tape recorders guitar amps microphones and I was churning out some really decent demos yeah. so he said uh, I would I think you're you're better suited to be a record producer 
So someone, tell- someone told you you were a record producer. That's right, yeah. When I grew up, you were forbidden to go into that control room. You know, there was the pane of glass. You were sitting out in the studio with your guitar or your vocal microphone. And then all of a sudden, when you made a mistake or something, this big voice would boom through a, a tannoy. <laughs> the you voice know, of God. Big, yeah. Your E string is out of tune. Yeah. You know, like that. And you go, oh my God. You know, who is that? You know, and they never. God's let, watching us. <laughs> yeah. They never let you in that room. And the, the time I was liberated from that, that, uh, confinement was when I came over here in London and everything was like wide open, everything was creative. I think we have the Beatles to thank for that. I've got, I've got some pictures of the Beatles recording at home on the wall and the thing I like about them I think, is that a lot of the technicians are all wearing coats. They're wearing like lab coats. EMI, yeah. You know. Well, there's, undeniably, they made some great recordings at Abbey Road with the yeah. white coats. Yeah. But with the Beatles, they didn't. They didn't like the like Paul McCartney didn't understand why the uh, microphone had to be six feet away from his his amplifier. Yeah. And he said, I mean, it doesn't sound like when I'm standing in front of it. Yeah. And George Martin like had to go against all rules and get that mic moved in right up against the grill. Yeah. And it was voila, it was a great McCartney's uh, bass sound is yeah. legendary. And uh, that would cause the revolution. But it was only because of them that they started to use the recording studio as a tool as a real tool to, or maybe a musical instrument, another yeah. musical instrument, yeah. and using equalization creatively to sweep through the filter and make a piano sound very harsh or very, you know, very distorted, you know. Yeah. Never, it would never happen with the previous generation. Yeah, everything you know, would have to sound Which was way. George Martin's generation, yeah. you know, and he broke. So he, he, he made a revolution inside his own mind, really. Yeah, he? yeah. I realized when I read about George Martin, when I heard what he did and how he operated, then I realized that's what I am. I'm that kind of a record producer, hands-on everything, Hmm. you know, including uh, helping the band maybe get a better chord for this melody or uh, alternative lines, backing vocals. I started doing that, and I did it in a way where I saw that he was very mild, mannered and spoke like a gentleman and I did my best to be the equivalent. <laughs> but you were from Brooklyn. <laughs> well, you know, I did it this way. Yeah. <laughs> You'll do it my I, way. I used to talk like this. <laughs> You'll do it my way or end at the bottom of the river. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, your, your CV is so eclectic. You, you sort of fell into folk music. That was always low uh, cost to do. Hmm. You know, I, I worked with Ralph McTell, first band I worked with was The Move, something of here. But anyway, I got them the big hit with uh, <laughs> Flowers in the Rain. Yeah. We put it out. We, it went up to number two. And when Radio One opened, it was the first single played on Radio That's right, One by it? Tony Blackburn. It's always in a pub quiz, that one. Yeah, is it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd pass that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. And then you met Mark Boland. Yeah. Was it big at the beginning? Well, it was kind of. I was told after about six months, now I have to uh, go out and find my own band, actually be a talent scout. Yeah. See, I wouldn't know where to begin, but I guess you start out going to clubs. And I just happened to hear the uh, John Peel show that weekend, and he presented a new group called Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I thought they were enchanting. You know, the voice was like from outer space. Mark Boland had a voice like no one ever had. Well, what he told me, was he listened to old blues singers at, at the wrong speed. 
40, he's slowing them down or speeding them up. He speed, he buy a 45 and he play it at 78. Right. And he's like, ah. <laughs> and he loved yeah. He was buying like R&B music, like female <laughs> vocalists. We're going, ah, like that. There was this little <laughs> underground club. They play specialized in underground music. Yeah. I walked in and it was dark and I thought no one was there. And I looked down and everyone, all these kids were sitting on the floor. And there was Mark on, sitting cross-legged on stage. He wasn't standing up. Went up to Mark, and Mark said to me, very, he was already full of shit. Yeah. He said, you're the eighth producer who came up to us this week. He says, John Lennon was here the other night. All of it was a total lie. Was it? Yeah. And he says, but I'll take your business card anyway. And he says, you work for Denny? I said, yeah, I work for Denny Cordell, and uh, I, I'd, I'd love to work with you. And uh, so I went, I went to the, the, the office the next morning about 10 a.m. We, we got there fairly early. And I said, I, I saw this wacky band last night. I said, they're really cool. You know, the guy sings like with a great weird voice. The music's uh, really underground. And uh, he says, oh, okay, uh, oh, we'll look, let's look into them. The phone rings. Mark is out on the street in a call box. When he used to have call boxes, yeah. he says, hello, it's, it's Mark Boland. Can I come up and, and audition for Tenny, Danny Cordell? <laughs> then he says, uh, yeah, sure. I've got Tony up here with me. Come, come on up here. And he was up there in five minutes. Yeah. So they came in and he brought the carpet he was sitting on the night before. He always sat on that little carpet and they unrolled it and put it on the floor sat down, we had, we had to look over the desk. You know, just, <laughs> just, just a bit of curly hair above the desk. Yeah. <laughs> Mark did his audition, he left. I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I like them. He goes, they're very quirky. We'll uh, take them on maybe uh, as our token underground group. <laughs> did you invent glam rock? <laughs> uh, you, certainly, you certainly produced the first official glam album. I think I did in that way, in that sense. Uh, Although the glam made more reference to the clothing, I would say, at the time. But it was the... It was the the sound of the guitar, wasn't it, that was very different? Yeah. Uh, Well, I I did everything on the... the, from even from uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, we started going for that sound. M- Mark wanted more of a rock and roll sound. He wanted yeah. the electric guitar, which he got by, I think, the third album, which was Unicorn. Yeah. We finally got a. Uh, he borrowed mine initially for the first few tracks, like yeah. Beltane Walk and yeah. tracks like that. Then he got his own Strat, and eventually a Les Paul. Yeah. And all the, the the effects I put on it were definitely what I heard and what I thought it should be. Uh, including this amazing thing we had, which was phasing and flanging. Yeah. You know, the Beatles started we all had these pedals fields. in the early 70s that said phaser and flange on. No, but we that could, you we, had to do with tape recorders. We could never get it to sound like yours. <laughs> no, because you, you needed three tape recorders to do Did that. You? Yeah. yeah. It's a special arcane secret. Hello. Gentlemen, so next course, I'm going to bring you something more traditional. Okay. Yeah, so. These two dishes, yeah. Well, the first one is atetela. Yeah, it's uh, basically street food in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and normally they fill with the refried beans. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, we're doing a chickpeas puree. Okay. Yeah. Underneath, you have a red sauce made with morita chile, which is let's say the cousin of the jalapeno mm-hmm. or the chipotle. So then, continue with this one. On top, you have some ghost curd with trombeta courgette. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of the avocado puree. Mm-hmm. And this one is atamal. It's filled with pork. Yeah. And then next to it is uh, salsa verde with tomatillo 
en Poblano Chiris. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank very, you very much indeed. You're very welcome. You must have eaten some awful stuff in 60 years of producing. When I first came here, the British food was horrible. Yeah, it was dreadful. It was yeah. dreadful. Where, where we apologize for I that. nearly cried. So I, I quickly discovered Indian food yeah. and Chinese food here. Chinese food is from Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, and there was no Sichuan, no Sichuan yet, yeah. you know, no yeah. mouth burning. But the Indian food was mouth burning. I know you recorded a lot in a chateau in France and then yeah. in the Hansa studios in Berlin. Oh, Hansa, yeah. yeah. So what kind of stuff were you eating there? The re local restaurants. Or were you just drinking? Were and very good. No, <laughs> we, well, we, no, we didn't. We couldn't. Couldn't find. Odd, oddly enough, couldn't find cocaine in Berlin. Could you not? We mm. we we asked the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> no, but we we had a very. David was a foodie. Yeah. So clearly, food. He loved good food, and he loved it. He he found the best restaurants in Berlin to go to. So during the day, we might get a sandwich for for uh, lunch. Yeah. And. Uh, which was always good. I mean, German food is—it's you know, really excellent. That in my in my uh, yeah. mind. And then in the evening we would go to a real luxurious restaurant, spend a lot of money, eat some great food, and we ate, we we did re, we did really well there. Yeah. But he he and I and and Iggy were we just never got out of our skulls on alcohol. We used to drink beer, maybe one beer during the session. And then in the evening, maybe we'd have a glass of wine with, with dinner. So it was very, very civilized, yeah. you know. We ate very well. That was a real, you know, when you do a David Bowie album, you're doing a foodie album. Brilliant. It's got to be right, you know. I never imagined that. Yeah, he, he wasn't. Because he was always so thin. I always thought, well, he probably doesn't eat very much, does he? Yeah, and he eats like good food, you know, yeah. like... Uh, he doesn't... I never saw him eat a slice of pizza. Uh, no, he always had to go to a fine restaurant. Not even much of much bread, you know. That's how he kept slim. I mean, he just yeah. naturally avoided carbs. He he wasn't on a special diet. Yeah. Hi there, I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on Out to Lunch, and this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch, gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time, but in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. With over a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash outtolunch. That's betterhelp.com slash outtolunch. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Dearest lunches, 
just to let you know that after you've finished listening to this, there's more. Yes, more. Join me over on The Digestivo, where you can hear your favourite guests tell us their top five restaurants in the world. Yes, that's in the world. That's potentially 60 restaurant recommendations from our special guests. And let me tell you, they know a thing or two about dining out. The Digestivo is also the place where we squeeze in some of the juicy extras that we didn't have room for in our regular episodes. For just £2.99 a month, you can get all that and every episode completely ad-free. Way less than the price of an actual Digestivo. This is the sort of thing you could be missing. And I was making an album with Phil Liner in the Thin Lizzy, yeah. and we went to La Coupole. He was already uh, intoxicated yeah. you know, from the session, which I was too. I'm not saying he wasn't. Yeah. We arrived there drunk and uh, he said, I'll have 36 oysters <laughs> and a bottle of Cointreau. <laughs> See? Start your free trial of the Digestivo now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Out to Lunch show page on Apple Podcasts. We'd also love to hear from you about your food experiences, from the most heavenly to the most excruciating. Just email lunch at sonymusic.com. Right then, back to the chat. When was the first time you thought, I'm a success? I think the first hit record is uh, something that everyone should celebrate, you know, which I did. It was probably Get It On, because that was... Right. A mega hit. It was a mega hit, and we had we had like, like hot love here, yeah, and uh, maybe metal guru. No, hot love was the first big Toronto T Rex song yeah. that was enormously successful. Rider White Swan went to number two, and it was it pretty much paved the way for hot love. Yeah, but we we made this is incredible to say now, selling sixty thousand singles per day. You're lucky if you sell 30,000 yeah. singles in the whole real lifetime of the single now. I've gone back to my record player and um, and I've got about a thousand singles. They're mostly ones I, me and Jennifer bought when we were young. Oh, say hello to Jennifer, by the way. Oh, I'm a I big will. fan. Yeah. <laughs> no, she wanted me to say to you uh, that um, she once met Mickey Finn, Boland's. He was after Took, wasn't he? He was, he was the yeah. bongo player. And... Um, She's an absolute Mark Bowden fan. She's, she's you know, and uh, she was so in, in awe of meeting him and she didn't have anything for him to sign. So eventually he, <laughs> she got him to sign her, her empty Tampax packet. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly lost it. <laughs> so that's all she had on there. How great. It's as close as she came to Mark. Oh, look, more food. Okay, that's the main event coming here. Yeah. This is actually oh, one of the best. Oh, that looks lovely. All right, so first we have orcochinita. Yeah, this is a very typical uh, dish from the south of Mexico. Yeah, it's uh, basically it's a slow, uh, slow cooked pork. In mm. this case, we're using um, pork shoulder. Yeah, it's marinated in uh, achiote. Achiote is a paste made with anato seeds. Yeah and then grinded with cloves, cinnamon, rehydrated with uh, orange, lime. Yeah, then that's the marination, then goes into the cold oven, yeah, all overnight. Yeah. Then you have your pickled onions. Yeah, they have mm -hmm. a little bit of kick because it has slices of habanero. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want some, here's your tortilla so you can do your own taco. Yeah, and here you have your mackerel. Yeah, it's marinated oh, yeah. in uh, coriander, parsley, and uh, some marsala tomato on the side. Brilliant. Good. Yeah. Thank Fantastic. you very much Thank indeed. You. Hope you enjoy it. I want to go and read you something now. Okay. This is, uh, this is David talking about you. And I just think it's the best review anyone's given anyone else. It goes, with Tony Visconti, who's producing my LP, it's part of his life. He lives with music all day long. It's going on in his room. He writes it, arranges it, produces it, plays it, thinks it, and believes very much in its spiritual source. His whole life is like this. Sweet. Isn't that a lovely thing for someone to say? I've never heard that. Yeah. When, When did he write this? It was on what's now called uh, Space Oddity, but was actually David Bowie, wasn't it? Um, the second album. I wasn't actually very good yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely thing to say. And, 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 he, and he means it, so that must be you. He, he, yeah. he knows you, doesn't he? So We were great friends. I mean, when I first met him in the offices of Danny Cordell, yeah. we, uh, it, it was a surprise sprung on me. My, my uh, Danny Cordell's partner said, uh, we've got a writer here that really uh, needs some some work. You know, he needs some understanding. And he played me the, the DRAM album where he, you know, he did these Tony Newley yeah. impersonations. Yeah. When I live my dream and all that, you know. There was always speak. a bit of Tony Newley in him, yeah. wasn't there? Always. Never, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I said, and I said, uh, here's what I think. I said, he's he's all over the place. And he needs to be focused. We have got, I've got to find something he does well yeah. and emphasize that. Because this Broadway stuff, this West End musical stuff is like, he's a 21-year-old man, you know. It, yeah. just, it just doesn't suit him, you know. Yeah. And um, little did I know how versatile he was. Because, you know, I, ju- I just changed his mind on the spot when I met him. So I said, well, would you like to meet him? And I said, yes. And he opened a, an, an inner sanctum door and David was sitting there waiting all along to meet me. Wow. This was a setup that I didn't know about. And the first thing I noticed was the eyes. Yeah. I went, oh, which one do I look at? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we, we had a fantastic talk until closing time and we were kicked out of the offices. We just decided to walk down Oxford Street and we ended up on King's Road. We kept walking down King's Road. We just did not want to part company. And we saw at the Chelsea Cinema was a new film out by Roman Polanski, and it's called A Knife in the Water, which till this day, I, I look at it again and again, you know, from the streaming services. And uh, we ended up saying goodnight to each other about 11 p.m. Obviously, we became fast friends immediately. Yeah. And nothing really came of that friendship except, because I, I really was not that good yet. And we did a few records for DRAM, which got him dropped from the label <laughs> in preference, yeah. which is the best thing that could happen to him. Yeah. They, they decided to focus on their other male singer called Cat Stevens. But I, we st- he never dropped me as a friend. You know, we had a couple of disappointments like that. And he kept me on as a friend and he loved the way I listened to him and respected him. Yeah. And I made it all the way to the Space Oddity album, although I turned down the single Space yeah. Oddity. Why did you do that? Gus Dudgeon did that, didn't he? I know. When David brought Space Oddity, Oddity to me, he got it signed to RCA Records with that. His friend Calvin Lee yeah. brought it to RCA Records and they said, that's, that's a hit. And then he brought it to me and here's where the spiritual side of me comes. I'm an, I, I, an idealist. And I said, it's a cheap shot. 
<laughs> I said that the, the astronauts just landed on the moon or something like yeah, that. It's a novelty it's, record. It's a, novel, it's a novelty <laughs> record. You know, what are you going to follow it up with? You know, the trip to Jupiter or yeah. something like that. You know what? And mark my words, I was right. He yeah. never did follow it up with anything like it. Maybe years later, he wrote Starman. Yeah. But that's after the fact, you know. Yeah. He said, okay. He goes, do you mind if I do this with Gus? I go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. When he played it to me at the end of it, I thought it was fantastic because he used this guy called Paul Buckmaster as the arranger. When I heard it, I said, nah, I said, I think you're going to work with Gus from now on. He did a brilliant job. Yeah. And I said, I'm sorry. You know, he goes, no, no. He says, we had to get that one out of the way. Now let's continue to make our album, yeah. the Space Oddity album. And I was flabbergasted. Yeah. As I said, I wasn't that good in those days, but it's a good album. Very, the other tunes on the album aren't bad and the production isn't bad. Yeah. It's okay. Your um, relationship with David sort of ebbed and flowed, didn't it? You do a couple of things together and you think, well, yeah, that was fun, we'll do it, and I'm doing this. Sometimes you need the kind of exactly. fallow time to let stuff grow in that field. At first I was really hurt when we, we did, just did Scary Monsters. Yeah. He goes off and does the next album with Niall Rogers. Mm. Scary Monsters was his pl first platinum record. Yeah. We, were, we were on... Uh, trajectory. Yeah. And uh, I was looking forward to doing the follow-up to that, which would have been fantastic. Then he goes and does Let's Dance, which is so un-Bowie. Yeah. And till this day, I mean, it's it's great Nile Rogers production, but it's not much of a song or, yeah. uh, in my opinion, you know. It got, I, it got I him more fans. himself was a bit pissed off with it. Is this true that David thought it was too successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was cross that it was a commercial success. I mean, everyone wants to be successful, but they want they want to be successful in the right kind of way. Well, it's a chic record. It's a yeah. Nile Rodgers record. It's brilliant. You yeah. know? And David was the, the front man, the lead singer. That's it. That was the first time we parted since we started. We did the Berlin, so-called yeah. Berlin trilogy already. Yeah. And then he went off and worked with other people. And Actually, it started something which was really good. We had this fallow period, as you say, but it gave us the opportunity to absorb other people's things, our techniques, yeah. you know, and characteristics and all that. So I started working with other artists, applying everything I learned be between T-Rex, David Bowie, even Elaine Page, whom, yeah. whom I worked with. And it was really good for me to, to learn from other artists. That's my thing. I mean, there's no Visconti sound. Yeah. That when, when I produce a record, you hear the artist... You brought out an album recently. Well, it was a compilation album called Produced by Tony Visconti. That's right. I've been listening to it, and the it's just, I don't know how many tracks there are, 60 tracks, something like that. Depends what version you buy. I think yeah. there's, there's up to... I think to if you buy it on, on, on vinyl, uh, you don't get the Bowie stuff because no. there's some kind of... There was a legal, legal palaver. Yeah. Me. But I'm gonna, just going to give you some names. Tell me, tell me what you remember. Mm. Altered Images... Two albums. Uh, it was it was the eighties when yeah. it was, I had so much work in the eighties from younger yeah. groups who were T Rex fans and Bowie fans and all that. Yeah. There's nothing, no relationship to uh, Claire Grogan's yeah. magnificent talents, except that I liked, I loved the, loved the demos. Yeah, and I and I thought she and the band they were very young, and I thought it's it's better for me to start working with younger people. I don't want to be yeah. seen as a dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> So that's why I took them on, and uh, that 
I think it was called Happy Birthday was uh, yeah, yeah. the big, that yeah. was so cool. That was smash it's hit. It's a cracking, cracking smash shit. Hit. Yeah. Yeah. We sing it a lot. Yeah. We sing it instead of Happy Birthday to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a track uh, by uh, someone called Bidu, Daughter of Love. Yeah. I'd never heard it before. It's brilliant. Oh, thank you. That was his very first single. Yeah. And, yeah. He came to India with a, an, an address or a phone number for Denny Cordell. He wanted to work with Denny Cordell. Yeah. Denny passed him on to me. But, um, you know, then he became Bidu from Indian films and yeah. made, made some Kung Fu Fighting is his biggest hit. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was so shocked that you'd done a Sparks album. Not that you shouldn't do a Sparks album, but it just sounds so different. That was because they wanted the to... The track on here is un, Under the Table with Her, which is a great track. They wanted to sound different. They were a little yeah. tired that they were put into a pigeonhole. Yeah. This was the big surprise that I, I never knew you, you produced was uh, Hazel O'Connor. Yeah, and that was based on the three women, that that that, that serious... Yeah, series. it was called, I've got too much bass in my cans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Rock Follies. Rock Follies, yeah, yeah. it was based on rock... So that, they were, Brian Gibson, was uh, the director, was going to make Rock Follies the film Yeah. and decided to make it uh, when people started auditioning. He loved Hazel, yeah. and he t she was the first person to select to be in the film. They're going to be, they were going to be two other women. Right. So he starts talking about her life at, with her, and he's like taking it all down. Her life is a better script than, the film, than Rock Follies, you know. Yeah. He said, well, we're going to have to do a lot of music. Do you have a preference for a record producer? And she said, Tony Visconti. Wow. It took us about maybe fortnight to record the, the whole soundtrack. Yeah. And then I asked Brian, I said, could I be in the film? <laughs> he said, oh. he says, no, he says, Tony, he says, yeah, there is a, a role of producer in the film. He says, but you can't play yourself. So Brian Gibson, the director of the film Breaking Glass, sent uh, John Finch, who was to play the role of the record producer in the film. He sent him to my studio and observed me to observe me producing uh, Hazel O'Connor. And he just sat silently on the settee and he's watching everything and he's taking it all in, making a few notes. And I remember there's one thing I said to Hazel after we, re we recorded that song called Will You. Yeah. I said to her, I hear strings. And uh, I don't know if I heard scribbling in the background, but he certainly <laughs> remembered that because the, when I saw the film, he was dressed the way I was dressed. He had a chain around his neck the way I had a, a chain around my neck. and. Uh, he said to the character in the film, I hear strings. <laughs> <laughs> so they took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> what I find we weird about you is that you've managed to remain experimental your entire life. And I wonder how you do that. Most people get into a, not a rut, into a road sometimes. Sometimes it can become a rut, but most people find an avenue and they, they think, well, this is what I do. And you go down that, but you have always kind of managed to, to swerve and, yeah. and be very open to other ideas. I mean, when, when you made Low, the David Bowie album, it, it's so different to anything almost before or after. You know, it was a kind of new idea, wasn't it? It was, yeah. You and, you and Brian Eno and, and David thinking of a, a kind of different soundscape. Brian thanked me in an interview once uh, yeah. about forgetting the unusual sounds on low because it, it was unlike any other Bowie album or even, yeah. even what he did. Uh, the, specifically the snare drum sound, the drum sound, 
was very radical because I had this thing called a harmonizer from yeah. made by a company called Eventide, which changed the pitch in real time. So and be prior to that, to change the pitch, you'd have to slow down the tape. Yeah. And as a result, you'd slow down the tempo as well yeah. of the music. And likewise, to speed it up, the same thing would happen. The harmonizer did it in real time. It was a, the first, it did it by a bunch of cascading digital chips. Yeah. So you put in a, like this, hello, and they, you turn it and it goes, hello, drop it yeah. like really, really deep. Yeah. And for, one of the first things I did was have my three-year-old son speak into the harmonizer, and then I would drop it so he was adult. Yeah. And he does, today he sounds exactly like he did <laughs> when I tried that experiment with him. Yeah. So I found all kinds of unique things to do with this instrument, and I had the, I bought the first one in the UK. I bought it. As soon as I heard it, I said, I got it. I have a hundred ideas for it. Yeah. And it was avoided like the plague. And they said, everyone, everyone said, why would you want a thing like this? It's, it's a, and I knew exactly, like, it's a new sound. And Those I, people oh, inventing new machines must have loved you. They must have sent you everything. Uh, I'm they, still, well, they will use it. <laughs> I'm still in touch with them. They, oh, yeah. they, they're my best friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you were in that sort of mode, is it, I've read bits about you insisting on spontaneity to the point where sometimes you get people in and not tell them what they're playing. Like, I think, I think you got Robert Fripp in yeah. uh, to play guitar on Heroes on, yeah. the, on the album, and you didn't play many of the stuff beforehand. You, you just set him up yeah. and played him the stuff, and he, had, he, he was invited to play along, and, and he enjoyed it because he's a, an he experimenter as well, isn't he? I seem to remember that there was no vocal yet. Yeah. David might have had a la 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 vocal. Yeah. And it wasn't called Heroes yet. Yeah. And, uh, but the music implied that. Everyone who did add their little bits to that, David always soaks up the local atmosphere. And yeah. like when we recorded in France, that low has a French sound to it, Heroes has a German sound to it. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the one after Heroes is called Larger. Yeah. It's got a, sw a Swiss sound to it. <laughs> it was recorded in Switzerland. Never yeah. the most popular yeah, country little, where music is concerned. Yeah, it was a little cleaner and less adventurous, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, it sounded high but I, always, I always thought it, you have to experiment. The, George Martin taught me that. And yeah. uh, I said, why, why make records that sound like other records? Make new sounds. Make people, make people imitate you, you know. Yeah. And that's, that was always my goal, to come up with something different and new. You have to talk about Black Star. <laughs> I find oh. it very emotional. Oh. It's my absolute favourite album. And not because he died shortly afterwards, but it's just, it seems to me, the pinnacle of, of everything you and he had ever done. Black Star? Mm. It is. I think it has everything that Lowe has. But it sounds like you'd kind of worked on it and kind of made it like so experimental but listenable too, which is a very hard thing to get to. Yeah. You know? I cried my eyes out too. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I spoke to him two weeks before he died. Yeah. And he was uh, I think he was feigning optimism. I don't think he I think he knew the number his number was up. Mm. But he said that as soon as uh, Christmas season is over, he's gonna go for his op and he'll be much better, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, it wasn't shortly after New Year's that he, that he died. Yeah. And um, boy, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I heard that he phoned from other people that he was making this phone call. 
making everyone feel okay and saying he was actually saying goodbye and uh, I didn't realize at the time he said goodbye to me yeah but, uh, he was happy that he just you know one thing I don't think is too personal he said that he was very happy he was about to become a grandfather and I thought wow yippee you know I wasn't a grandfather yet this was terrific news they, mm-hmm. you know, he was a good he was such a good man such a good mm-hmm. family man a really good friend and he never did me wrong ever or anyone he was very fair and he even left in his uh, will to uh, that if his records were to be re-released and remixed and all that if the producer is still alive have him get the first make the first shot you know yeah. have him do it and i've had that privilege since he's passed away yeah. i remixed low who else? I mean, not many people in rock are that nice. Yeah, it's well, not many man. people in life are that nice, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. You know. I can't emphasize how much of a good man he was. Yeah. Do, do you think people have held him differently since he died? I wonder if, if you know, I think people do, don't they? Because they make them into gods, don't they, once they're dead, whereas they don't yeah. normally do it when they're alive. Although he did, I mean, obviously he had loads of fans, but I mean, the absolute recognition which only comes when people's lives are complete. Isn't it weird? Well, you know, like the, he was during, during his life, he was, he was starting to get that uh, godlike uh, adoration. And how did he cope with that? I'll tell you one funny story. Uh, he did a big uh, concert upstate New York, and uh, it was a small venue, and there was a, a crowd outside queuing. And he thought, what the hell? He just decided to walk join, out. Join the queue. Yeah, join the queue. Well, he, he, he walked alongside the queue and said hello to everybody. Right. And one uh, woman grabbed his hand and she went, David, and then she choked. She was trying to like, <laughs> she was like that. And he said, it's okay, I know. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Isn't that great? Yeah. And he, he didn't say it with any ego. Yeah. You know, People should be saying how brilliant you are before you die. So I'm going to tell you, you're brilliant. You really are. You're telling me? Yeah. Oh, thank you, sir. Mm. <laughs> thank you so much. Mm. Well, I just told you how brilliant I think you are, too. Yeah. With the, all the fantastic comedy you did. And We're both brilliant. We're both brilliant. <laughs> Tony, it's been absolutely fabulous. Thank you, sir. You. Taking you out to lunch. I'm sitting with across from one of my biggest idols. I love you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. They say you shouldn't meet your heroes. Well, I think they're wrong, because I've just met one of mine and he was brilliant. Tony Visconti there. He's got a box set out at the minute called Produced by Tony Visconti. It's a massive piece of work, six CDs, and they cover all six decades of his producing career. And it includes everyone it includes David Bowie, T-Rex, Joe Cocker, Altered Images, The Straubs, Sparks, Mary Hopkin, Adamant, The Moody Blues, Hazel O'Connor, just many, many more. It's a brilliant piece of work. Get it. Enormous thanks go to Laszlo, Shirley, Head Chef Ernesto and the rest of the team at Cavita in the heart of London for having us. Go to cavitarestaurant.com. That's C-A-V-I-T-A restaurant.com. They really made us feel very welcome and the food was spectacular. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music 
or wherever you get your pods for new episodes. And please tell everyone about us so we can make some more. Thank you to our production team. Production management is Poppy Thompson. The assistant producers are Rani Prescott and Dulcie Wadcock. Social media is Jonathan Imiere. The recording engineer is Matthias Torres Sole. And the mix engineer is Gulliver Tickell. The senior producer is Selena Reem. And executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Out to Lunch is a Sony Music Entertainment production. That was out to lunch. We've eaten all the grub that set our lips a smacking. That was out to lunch. We polished off the booze and soiled our napkins. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh.